You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hello, and with me today, as is becoming normal, is John Stepek, who is, uh, as everyone now knows, the author of Money Distilled, the, the Bloomberg newsletter, which is becoming very successful, isn't it, John? It is. It is. It's, uh, we've uh, delivered a real return of like, at least 300% over the last three months in terms of number of subscribers. So That's you know. amazing. That's someone no one else who isn't running a coal company can say. <laughs> yes, and I'm equally ethical. Absolutely. I'm sure you are. Now, listen, this is our last podcast for the year. And so I want to ask both of us what we think is going to happen next year. Not everything, obviously, because we, we're going to get that wrong. But I've been sent by the wonderful Duncan Lamont uh, of Schroeder's this great chart. And this is something that I mentioned in my column for Bloomberg Opinion this week about how it is that we have come to believe that the US market always outperforms and has historically always outperformed when it's simply not true. So he sent me a chart, which he calls an equity market, hang on, equity market performance quilt, because that's how they roll on, on the on <laughs> That the seems cozy. It's, it, so it shows which market or which sort of area has outperformed in every year since 1991. Now, before 2011, and here's the interesting bit, before 2011, the US was the top performer in only two of 20 years, right? The US was not number one. If you look at the chart and see who was number one, uh, you can see emerging markets very, very frequently, particularly from 2000 and, well, 1999 on, 1999 through to sort of 2005, uh, down a bit in 2006, but seven, eight, not eight, actually, eight was bad for emerging markets, obviously, nine, 10 emerging markets. And then you've got Europe popping up occasionally. You've got the UK popping up only twice as the top in the entire thing. And then come 2011, suddenly it's all America, 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 outperforming all the way. But the key point is that this is a new dynamic. There is no reason to believe people when they say the US always outperforms, the US always trades at a premium, etc., because it simply doesn't. Again, the trading at a premium thing only started in the 90s and the constantly outperforming thing only started in the 2010s. And now if you look at the UK and how it's done in this um, quilt, um, it's mainly coming in the middle, right? So it's, it outperforms everybody else occasionally. So twice, as I said, it underperforms also occasionally three times in this series. Majority of the time, it is knocking round the middle. What I want to go on to say, tell me when you're bored, John. <laughs> no, no, this is actually really interesting. It's a, it's a good chart. Is it, Duncan has another great chart, uh, which we look at frequently, which shows 
uh, what which markets are cheap and how they're cheap. It's not it's not perfect because it only goes back 15 years and it's what is cheap or expensive relative to a 15-year median. And you could argue perfectly reasonably that the last 15 years is entirely irrelevant uh, because it's been mainly a low interest rate environment. But nonetheless, nonetheless, if you look at the forward PE for, say, the UK market, it's on nine, so 24% below uh, its long-term average, if you think 15 years is long-term. Trailing PE, 13 times, 9% below. Um, and the only measure on which it's looking a little pricey is the cyclically adjusted PE. But even on that, it's 14 times, which isn't out of the park. Go to the US, the uh, area which everyone expects to constantly outperform, and an awful lot of analysts are expecting the US to just come riding right back next year. But look at this. On a forward PE, it's on 17 times, 8% above normal. Trailing PE, 20 times, sort of knocking around the average for the last 15 years. But again, does the last 15 years count? Cyclically adjusted, it's on 28 times. It's 20% above even the normally high US levels, right? US looks very expensive. UK looks very cheap. So look at it like that and look at the way that the market is changing. And why is everyone waiting for what has happened over the previous 10 years to start to happen again next year. I'm looking at a report from um, Gavcal, or Gavcal. How do you say that? I say Gavcal. Yeah, but they're French, so it's Charles Gav. Okay, so they've got um, a fabulous chart, which they roll out all the time when they're talking about boom and bust, which is of the top 10 largest companies by market capitalization globally. And you can look at it all the way through. So in the 1980s, when we were talking about peak oil, it was companies that reflected that. In 1990s, they were pretty much all Japanese because we believed then that Japan would take over the world, which we didn't by 1990, slightly earlier. 2000, you've got the TMT bubble. And so you can see NTT, Cisco Systems, et cetera, all in there. 2010, and then you get to the beginning of 2021. And we've got this idea that only tech can deliver growth. And so you've got Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, Facebook, Tesla, et cetera, all at the top there. And everyone's looking at those and thinking that that's going to continue. But, but you know, why, why would it? Why would it? Surely, if you were going to be completely rational about next year, you'd look at all these charts and you'd say, well, obviously, the thing that led the last great bull market is not going to lead the next one. It's got to be something else. What might it be? And you might want to look at the thing that is, you know, basically the cheapest in the world and the thing that has lots of companies related to where we suspect the next bull market might be, commodities, etc. And what would you do? You'd buy the UK. So I think that the UK might take one of its rare positions at the top of global performers next year. How mad is that? It doesn't sound mad at all, in my view, I have to say. Um I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, your, your point about, uh, like, why do people expect the US to keep outperforming is purely just down to uh, momentum and um, extrapolating. I mean, that's it's what, I mean, it's, in a way, it's what this quilt shows as well. It's like extrapolation is why we get bubbles. And at the end of a bubble, the kind of conventional wisdom is that the, the same thing that's been happening for the last 10 years is just going to carry on. Because usually betting on what happened last year continuing is basically the right bet. So it's the low risk bet. So there's both a, there's a psychological reason for it, which is that actually we, we do extrapolate very badly and that's just an instinctive thing. But there's also an organisational thing, which is that the low risk forecast is basically the same again as happened last year. So I can see why people can like think it's going to go back to you know the US. But equally, 
you know, all the kind of, I mean, I, I really don't think it's at all controversial to turn around and say that, well, actually the environment has changed. I mean, even, I mean, Howard Marks at kind of Oak Tree Capital, who's a kind of smart, distressed debt investor, um, had a big letter out earlier this month saying that he, think, he thinks it's only the third time in his entire career, and he's an old guy, um, you know, by most investor standards, um, that he thinks that the environment has completely changed. And it's changed in the way that we've been talking about is kind of inflation in the environment. We're moving away from what has been the overvaluation of intangible assets and back towards tangible assets. Um, there's lots of different ways you can paint this. You know, it's we're moving away from kind of a kind of fairy tale world to to things you can touch and see again. Um, but either way, that favours, I think, cheap stuff over expensive stuff and the stuff that's in the UK over the stuff that's in the US. And the other thing about rising interest rates is that that also favours financials, which were obviously the kind of... I mean, one thing I do find interesting is that... So the TMT bubble burst in 2000, and then we had a financial bubble, but then burst in 2008. And then just as the 2008 bubble was collapsing, stocks like Amazon and all the rest of it, the few that had survived the TMT bubble were, were bottoming out. And that, that was, broadly speaking, the time to buy them. And then it took a little while for them to get going again. And I can see it's returning to that sort of cycle where, where the tech stuff is falling again um, and financials are coming back. So, aye, yeah, long story short, I agree uh, for, for all of those reasons and, and more. Good. I like it when you agree with me. It makes me feel relaxed. <laughs> John, happy Christmas to you. Happy Christmas to you too, man. Welcome to Merrin Talks Money, the podcast in which people who know the markets explain the markets. I'm Merrin Somerset Webb. This week, our guest is Harry Nimmo, one of the most successful investors in UK smaller companies. He's been in investment nearly 38 years. He's about to retire from Aberdeen and the industry as a whole at the end of this year. So we decided to start our conversation by discussing the lessons that Harry has learned about investing during those four decades in the business. Well, I think you have to see the wood for the trees, and that's the, the right way of saying it. You you can be an expert on a company, you can know everything about a company, but that doesn't necessarily make you a, a, a good investor. I think you've got to know the right things. That's the point one. Uh, and, and point two is that you, I think you have to have a process that, um, and you have to be consistent in what you're doing. If you're if you're chopping and changing the whole time, that's uh, that's kind of hopeless. And there's there's not one successful process there are a good number let's say um but you you need to have it you need to be consistent and when you go off piste uh, you're going to go to lose it so you need to know the right things and you have to have the right process okay well let's start with the right things what are those right things there's various things we we stick to we, we like to to run our winners and cut our losers earnings earnings revisions momentum is is very important to us uh, i'm sure you've You've heard me uh, go on about our, our investment process and our, our stock selection matrix. We, we've done a lot of back testing. We've uh, checked what does work and what does not work. And we find that earnings revisions momentum is, is very important. If, if you're running large amounts of money, you have to be long term. Uh, so you can't chop and change quickly. Um, and, you know, in some ways that's a disadvantage. but. But being a large investor gives you that discipline in terms of, of what you are selecting. You have to select the right stuff. And 
uh, as we uh, as we invest in companies, we normally have a have a starter pack, and then um, we will, as we get more confident in the, in the management, we will uh, we will build up our, our holding. We we do think that growth is is important in, in smaller companies, and and actually this helps you get through the um, the difficult times, the, the the recession periods. You know, we like to think that we have a number of companies in our portfolio that can grow uh, regardless uh, of the uh, state of the uh, of the world economy. So, so that's important to us. I want to go right back to the basics of when you say that you need to know the right things about a company. Uh, that includes includes what? Includes the, how good its management is. Includes the sector it's in. Includes the level of growth you expect from it. What what makes a company right and what makes a company wrong? There's a persistency and a, a, a dynamic change in within companies and within businesses. Uh, it's, it, it's changing all the time. And that persistency means that a company that is moving in the right direction is going to continue to move in the right direction for some considerable period. So we want to get on board with that. Um, we also find that... Um, you know, we, we, we are finding good success with founder-run businesses, and at least a third of our our companies are founder-run. And I think a very important part is that is the quality of the earnings and the predictability of the earnings. Uh, a company that has, let's say, negative working capital is in a much better position than a company that has to pay its suppliers uh, and hold hold large amounts of stock before it it actually gains gains revenue. So, long-term contracts are important to us, and the companies that know where next year and the year after is, um, earnings are coming from. And in smaller companies, we, we think it's very important. If companies can be successful in the UK and then translate their business internationally, even if it's quite a small niche, then that can be um, you know, a very, very strong growth driver. I mean, a good, a good example of this might be Games Workshop, which uh, we don't own so much of it. Uh, now it's a large company, but... Um, uh, we, we, we owned it for many, many years and um, successful in the UK, then became successful in, in Europe, North America, and then the Middle East and Far East. And, and so it's, it, let's face it, it's not a big niche, but if it's a global leader, it can become a significant company. One thing you haven't mentioned when you talk about wanting to know the right things is valuations at the beginning. And I know that you tend to be interested in quality, you tend to be interested in growth, and maybe initial valuations aren't something you look at in quite the same way as other investors. Yes, we, we're now back testing. We have not found um, a correlation between low value stocks and outperformance. In, indeed, most of the time, it's the reverse. There are clearly exceptions uh, to the rule. And, and an, an, an exception was in the first uh, five months of the year. But we do not find any correlation. In smaller companies, I think the danger is low-value stocks are either low-growth stocks or they are stocks with problems. They are stocks that are about to issue profits warnings, they're about to cut their dividends, and uh, and that's a dangerous place. I mean, smaller companies can go bust, and if the momentum of a business is negative, it can it can go on for many years and it can go all the way. It can go all the way to zero. And we really want to avoid that. And it's 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 the dynamic of change. And stocks are, like I said, often cheap for a reason. And and the reason is they're they're kind of going nowhere. So we are wary 
of, of valuation. That's not to say that we uh, completely ignore it. We do build it in to our matrix. It's a, it's a secondary factor. And another thing we tend to be wary of is what I would call blue sky stocks. Uh, I think they are dangerous uh, in the small company world. Um, they can be great for um, for a period, but then they, you know, the rug, they're found to, it's, it's a bit like emperor's new clothes sometimes with these companies and uh, and, and they can completely, completely fall apart. So we want to avoid that. So valuation is, is secondary, we say, in our investment process. Okay, but can I stick with it for a, for a minute, though, in that it may be secondary, but putting aside blue sky stocks, there must be some limits to valuations. So when you say it's secondary, what do you look at and what counts? In terms of valuation, it's old-style metrics. It's uh, prospective price-earnings ratios and uh, and prospective uh, dividend yields. It's, 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 it's as simple as that. There's nothing particularly uh, scientific in, in our valuation parameters. But I would say our portfolio is really in the last 25 years, we've tended to be, let's say, at a 30% premium to the um, the market, our smaller companies market, in terms of valuations the entire time. I mean, really, the last 25 years, we've been investing in what are seen as expensive stocks. But I, I should sort of caveat that we're, we're not in the sort of, I don't know, Bailey Gifford style expensive stocks. Um, but, you know, you know, we are definitely more expensive than the market. And in some ways you do, you do get, get what you pay for, or at least that's our job is to make sure that we are indeed getting what we're paying for in terms of our analysis and, and research on uh, individual companies. But just a point that maybe I should make is that you know, there are something like seven or 800 stocks to choose from. This is just in the UK, and we run global and, and European smaller companies funds. We've got to cut that down. We know we've only got a, a small team, and we need to, and the matrix helps us to be consistent in our process and, and to provide us with a shortlist. So after we have that shortlist, reduce that 700 down to 100, and then we can, we can do our analysis, we can meet companies, we can you know, can look into the whites of the eyes of the, the chief executive and, uh, you know, figure out um, uh, whether this is a quality business with uh, predictability or, or not. I've seen these fund manager matrices before and they're pretty complicated stuff, you know, pages and pages of checklists. Ours is not, is not that complicated, but I, I have to be slightly cagey here. We don't want to, um, you know, give away uh, entirely, uh, the, you know, the, the state secrets here. But um, the, there's, there's four um, earnings revisions momentum factors. There's two price momentum factors. There's two quality factors. There are two growth factors and there are two value factors. I told you the value factors and quality um, would include Altman Z scores and Petroisky scores, and, and growth is simply earnings per share and dividend per share growth. The price momentum ones, uh, they're, they're, they're sort of 10, um, 90 and 30 day moving averages and, um, and, and a number of other uh, technical measures. Yeah, one thing you didn't mention on your metric sheets is um, ESG. Almost everyone has an ES, ESG overlay of some kind at the moment. So when you look at most people's box ticking exercises, they tend to include a type of ESG score, whether it's lifted directly from MSCI or whether it's a mixture of MSCI ratings combined with internal ratings, etc. But it's on most checklists. Well, we, we certainly pay attention to it. And I, I think it's the, it's, it's the corporate governance um, aspect that 
I feel is most important. You know, are these are these honest people? Are they following the rules? Are they are they following the rule of law, uh, uh, the regulations and such like in terms of their relationships with external investors? We want to be sure we're on the the you know level playing field with other investors who are not being systematically uh, disadvantaged. So that is the key one. We we, we do take uh, take into account other factors, you know, global warming, all, all, that, all that stuff. But we, what we don't want is for ESG to be leading the investment process. It is, it is, I would say, secondary. You've got to pick the stocks first and then see how they, uh, how they track on, on ESG. And we certainly, we don't have any blanket um, restrictions about investing in um, oil and gas or mining stocks. Uh, and I, I think that's an important case in point. And, I was thinking about this recently, and you know, the UK, for example, requires gas uh, to, to 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 be able to sort of transform itself into a, a sort of carbon neutral economy. It needs uh, gas in that uh, in that period. Let's say in the next fifteen years to, before that is complete, and and the best place to get it is is from the North Sea. Uh, so I, I don't I don't see uh, any. Um, inconsistency in having, uh, let's say, an oil and gas stock in our smaller company's uh, portfolio uh, producing uh, gas in the North Sea. If it, if it fits our investment process, I think that's the first thing. ESG is the next stage. You look at ESG in kind of the same way as valuations, right? And that uh, it's a secondary thing. The process is followed first. If something isn't an absolutely extreme valuation, maybe you might think again. And again, with ESG, it's secondary. If something, if a company was doing something absolutely disgusting, you might think again. But there's no hard and fast rules. I don't want to give the impression that we don't take ESG seriously because we absolutely do. It's it's, it's very important to, at Aberdeen. We we do take it seriously. But for instance. I've never seen um, a correlation, great ESG equals outperformance. I mean, no academic has has proven that to us. So we should always put our our investors first and uh, endeavor to provide best performance for them. And then other things uh, follow, which are are clearly important too, but they, they follow. Harry, that's really interesting that you say that because I agree with you. No academic has ever yet proved to me that great ESG equals outperformance. But that's a fairly standard thing for people to say in the industry at the moment. It's something people say to me all the time. Of course, we have an ESG overlay because uh, the data shows us that uh, stocks with a high ESG rating outperform those without one. I haven't seen that data. To be honest. No, I haven't either, but I'm constantly told about it. I've seen a lot of short-term data that tells you that, but I haven't seen any long-term data. But of course, ESG only started to exist around the middle of your career, right? Well, it's it's it's, it's developed, it's changed. I mean, we used to have, we used to have something called ethical investing, uh, but that seems to be um, uh, it kind of disappeared. You know, I remember that too. I even remember SRI investing, which I think was before ethical investing. And that had to be rebranded thanks to underperformance, I think. I might go back and check that. Well, I, I think you, you do need a long time before you can prove any any sort of um, consistency of, a, let's see, ESG, whether it does produce outperformance. And if, if statistics ever came on board that uh, suggested this, then there would be a rush for that, um, uh, that, that type of investing. And then it would probably... Um, go into reverse. I don't know. It's not good. It's not for me. So tell me, here's the thing that I really want to ask you, which is that your career 
has been uh, long and interesting, but had, has also in the main happened during this period of low and falling interest rates from very, very high at the beginning of your career to very, very low now, uh, low and falling inflation in the main, in the main, um, and an environment which a lot of people, me included, would say is now changing completely. And we're moving, this isn't just a business cycle, this is a generational secular change back towards rising interest rates, higher levels of inflation, and possibly also a very different market environment. Now, I was at a, a Money Week conference on Friday where we had the amazing uh, Russell Napier uh, equity strategist speaking first. And he said, what most fund managers don't understand is that everything that they've learned over the last 30 years, they must forget because the environment is different. So the question for you really is, has the last year of, of you know shifting valuation, shift from uh, growth being on top to value being on top, albeit not for the entire year, et cetera, and the changing dynamics in interest rates, inflation, in geopolitics, the change in our relationship with China, the change in the way our supply chains operate, et cetera, does this make you think that if you were going to be investing for another 10 years, you might do it differently? Okay. Um, well, the answer... To, it's a world no, of big questions no. on this podcast. Sorry. <laughs> the answer is no. And I, I do sort of, I, I mean, I was sort of, uh, let's see, a late teenager when um, the last period of galloping inflation um, occurred, 73, 74, up to, to the 80, 80s. Um, and I, I do, I do. It's one time I remember my, my father was a little bit, bit twitchy about money. He, he normally was pretty phlegmatic about money, but he... He certainly was uh, very concerned about uh, you know, stock market levels at that time. And I do ask myself, well, what the hell happened to uh, the growth stocks um, in, in, the, in the 70s and, you know, the Nifty 50 and all that this kind of stuff? They, you know, they probably did have a hard time for, for a while. And uh, you, I'm sure it's not escaped you that our, our portfolios did particularly badly in, let's say, the first five months of, of this year. And... I think part of that was definitely about rising inflation and um, and rising interest rates on the back of that. And I think what made it worse was that uh, COVID had actually, if anything, been unnaturally favourable towards our kind of growth stock and growth shares. So we saw just a a humongous unwinding, um, very painful, very painful for our, our investors. But I like to think, uh, you know, maybe I'm speaking too soon, but I like to think um, that that period is over. And actually, the second half of the year has been, uh, you know, much better for us. And we've actually had a really good uh, last uh, last month. And indeed, the six month and, and three months numbers are looking second quartile and um, pointing in the right direction. So, uh, you know, um, value has its day and undoubtedly um, rising interest rates and rising inflation are, are good for, for value shares. But we, well, we're hopeful that that period is, is, is kind of over. I don't think, um, I mean, your commentator um, is, is correct in saying that you've got to forget everything you ever learned um, in the last 30 years and, and move on to some some new metric. Um, I mean, for instance, we you know we, we do feel that inflation will come down, um, oil prices will fall. Uh, hopefully, for God's sake, this dreadful war in the Ukraine will be over sometime, and and also China might um, 
get its uh, get its act together in, in terms of how it deals with COVID. Um, you know, I suppose your, your one of your points was well, you know the the globalization, which I suppose has been so important for um, uh, keeping inflation down, has has kind of gone into reverse. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm an optimist, and I'm hoping that um, with goodwill and the right leaders in, in place, that hopefully that will um, not be over for, forever. So I, I just don't I don't really buy your um, your commentators' uh, words on this one. I, I think we're we've seen a, a kind of a one-off, very serious transition uh, in the first half of the year, and, and we're kind of through that, and wasn't helped by by COVID either. So everything's going to be pretty much back to what we used to see as normal by next year. I, on record, is suggesting that we are within six months of, of the bottom, shall we say. And, you know, but it's, I think it's quite conceivable that we will test the, um, test the lows, lows of um, October again. Um, we've got a winter to get through and there's some, some very serious issues on, on gas supply, particularly to, to, to Western Europe. Um, so I'm, I'm not um, totally sticking, sticking my neck out, but I've done quite a lot of work in it on, on these recovery periods. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a stock picker rather than a top-down specialist, but do you remember the banking crisis and let's say um, October, November 2008, and um, things were horrendous. We, we were staring at the, um, the meltdown of the, the world banking industry, uh, Royal Bank. My, I, I was worried about what we might uh, dealing with a bank of Scotland here in Edinburgh. It looked like they were within days of going under. And uh, it was it was really, really bad. But actually, the, the low point was towards the end of November 2008. There was a, they tested um, uh, new lows um, in, in, in March 2009. But actually, you know, the, the point of recovery is quite often when things are looking at their grimmest. And well before the, the the end of the downturn, in fact, often at the start of the of the recession, and we are in, it feels to me like we are in recession in the UK. The only thing I worry about, I, I so want, I so want to agree with you. I so want to think that you know we'll have this this recovery and everything will go back to, to how it was because that was you know quite nice for investors, if not for a lot of other people. Um, but when we came out of that banking crisis, we did that with money printing and very negative interest rates. And I, I wonder if, if we can really do that again. Okay, well, I mean, you, you, you have a point. And, and that is why our portfolio, um, as best as we can, is, is full of companies that actually can, we think, uh, ride out um, very difficult times. Um, and uh, I mean, just looking at our largest holding at the moment, uh, you may have heard of Telecom Plus. You might even be a subscriber on their utility warehouse platform where they sell gas, electricity, mobile fixed telephony, all the rest. Um, it's actually a positive beneficiary of um, the current environment. It's a lot of its competitors have, have gone under. It's, you know, wins awards from Which Magazine and Daily Mail and whatnot for best uh, service so we like these sorts of companies that can actually are not dependent on the economic cycle that can can grow um, regardless of that and if the economy gets really really bad then surely um, 
interest uh, inflation will start to come down and interest rates or rate of growth will start to come down too. So it's a sort of self-correcting um, mechanism, shall we say. Um, you know, that's what I'm banking on. Yeah, me. Well, I think we're all hoping that we're all hoping that. And anyway, of course, in the in in the seventies, when all these terrible things did happen, uh, economic in the economy, etc., it was the small and mid cap stock pickers who excelled. That's where the uh, the real gains were made. Even as um, well, the, I'm glad uh, to hear you say that. Larger companies um, did badly. Yeah, I'm glad, really glad to hear you say that. But I, I mean, I was in a, you know, I was before investments. I, I was in the oil and gas industry. I, I haven't always worked in in asset management um so uh, you know that that was really in the in the period of um, when inflation was incredibly high i you know i i suppose i was in a different industry so i i didn't i didn't suffer as much in that respect mm. so you do have oil and gas in the portfolio at the moment i'd love to talk about a few of the companies we just got one one stock uh, serica energy it's a, a north sea gas producer and it's, I suppose, you know, recently it's been hit by these uh, punitive taxes that are, um, are, are are being brought into place by the current government to, to raise money. But I do think that's a little, you've got to be careful here. You don't want to sort of completely destroy the ability of oil and gas companies to develop um, what's left of our um, oil and gas assets in the North Sea. We still need this gas. We will need it in the next 15 years to to make that transition. I think that's quite important. I don't see it as inconsistent with ESG and and carbon neutrality or anything like that. No, it's a funny business, the windfall taxes, isn't it? It feels like a sort of a tax on luck and as though they should probably be, you know, any other company that suddenly finds it's uh, making abnormal profits should be taxed as well. So, I don't know, the fund management industry should be under a a windfall tax the whole time because its margins are significantly higher than those of other sectors. And pharmaceutical companies in a pandemic, we should definitely windfall tax them. Basically, any bit of luck should be taxed, right? I can sense you're you're being uh, you're attempting to be provocative here. <laughs> no, no, actually, I, I really think these things. Yeah, it's it's a good it's a good argument. It's it's you're 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 right. Our our margins are, you know, certainly above average, and so are the pharmaceutical industry. That's for sure. But um, you know, there are industries under pressure from well the active side from the from the, from the passive managers, um, and I would say costs are. Uh, you know, um, fee, fee rates are consistently falling. And the, the amount we can charge our investors is, is falling continuously. I know, isn't it? Absolutely fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Investment is getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper for the ordinary person. This seems like phenomenally good news. Great news, great news. You know, quite soon, fun fees will be back where they were at the beginning of your career. <laughs> when they were very significantly lower. Right, let's move on to what people really want to hear about, which is some of your favorite stocks in the portfolio. We talked about Telecom Plus, we've talked about um, Serica. You're off in a few months, but if there were a couple of those stocks that you could take with you, which you probably will, um, and hold for a decade, which would they be? Uh, Telecom Plus is certainly one of those. Another, another one, Kanos, um, which is a, a digitalization company. You know, all these processes that used to be uh, done by on paper, and we'd 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 go up to um, the high street and uh, get our parking permits and write a check and all that stuff. We now all do that online. It's the same with our 
our income tax, council tax, everything, you, you name it. But it's almost inconceivable how much of this kind of stuff has happened and has yet to happen. Kanos is the is the leader in that. It's, it's, it's quite an interesting company and it's now very significant in the United States. We think that's got a, a good few years to um, uh, grow as well. And we, we also saw um, actually one of our largest holdings just before this meeting, Alpha Financial Markets Consultants. And um, we've owned it since it listed five years ago. And they are um, advisors to the financial services industry. First off, the uh, active managers, but also insurance, wealth managers and the like. And they help businesses that are under pressure. And, um, you know, our industry is under pressure on a financial basis. And, and they are a consultancy to that business. And again, successful business in the UK that is expanding geographically, but also by a subsector into insurance and wealth management and the like. And they're now half their businesses in the US and they they provide a demonstrably, they're specialists, a demonstrably better service than the likes of uh, uh, ENY, KPMG and all the other um, sort of generalist um, financial advisors. So we, we think that's a you know, very, very strong business um, there. One more, one more you might take with you. I'm always intrigued by uh, YouGov. You know, the ones that seem to... Um, uh, have to poll polling results that they get it right the whole time in terms of the politics and you know um, it's sometimes it, there you get slight, slightly get the impression that it's all a bit self-fulfilling if YouGov says uh, trust is going to be the next head of the Conservative Party uh, on polling Conservative members then it it's probably going to be the case and uh, people take uh, so much notice but they're, 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 they're more than that it's really about um, their panels, um, uh, which have hundreds of thousands of people on them, the, the information and feedback that they get from these panels, and how they package and dice and slice that information and and sell it uh, sell it on to companies who are obsessive about what the public thinks of their business and their brand. Okay, interesting. That's a good one. I think we're very glad to know what you're taking into your retirement with you. Let me ask you one last question, and it's not a trick question, I promise, although that signed like one. You're interested in growth. You're interested in innovation. You're interested in governance. Do you own any Bitcoin? Absolutely not. Um, you know, I, I've, I, I find it extraordinary, actually, that um, the world has gone mad over this. It, it, it just, even from the very earliest stages um, it felt like a, an accident um, waiting to happen and, and, and unregulated I mean, it's, it's, it's dangerous and I'm a little surprised that the uh, the regulatory authorities haven't um, paid more attention to this so I, I kind of feel that in five years time we, there probably won't there'll be ancient history and we won't think about um, cryptocurrency any longer I totally agree with you. And it's one of, the, one of the reasons I asked the question. I'm so happy to end with us in complete agreement. Um, I think five years is about, I, I, like, I was thinking maybe it would take a shorter amount of time, maybe a longer amount of time, because there's such a big infrastructure around the crypto industry now. There's lawyers, all those accountants, all those everybody, and the, the conferences and the big departments at all the banks, et cetera. Um, but I can't see how it can survive. So maybe three years, maybe five years, maybe 10 years, but yeah, there'll come a point when no one mentions it anymore. 
Thank you for listening to this week's Marin Talks Money. We are taking next week off, but you'll have a new Marin Talks Money in your podcast feed the first week of January. Please, if you like our show, which I'm sure you must do, rate, review and subscribe wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. This episode was hosted by me, Marin Somerset Webb. It was produced by Summer Sadi, editing and sound design by Blake Maples. Special thanks, of course, to Harry Nemo and to John Stepek. And finally, don't forget to sign up to John's newsletter, Money Distilled. It's very good. The link is in the show notes. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.